This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Good morning and welcome to RRR's Radio Therapy, your weekly hour of all things medical and psychological. I'm Dr Autonomy and I'm here today with two of our brilliant regulars, Kent working his magic on the buttons as always, plus an extra special guest for the whole hour. Our two brilliant regulars are, of course, the lovely Miss Medic, our resident GP here to correct all our medical misunderstandings and confusions with facts and science, and Dr Mellis, our resident child psychiatrist and lover of not just the past, but also paradigm shifts, neuroplasticity, new books and sometimes even the future. Then there's our special guest... Sitting next to me today, just as she did almost 20 years ago in an undergraduate psychology lecture, is the wonderful Dr. Aidy Brown, clinical psychologist and founder of an exciting new organisation called Mindful Beginnings. We've got her on the show not just to reminisce about our undergraduate days, but also (laughs) to find out about mindful childbirth, a topic very close to my own heart as I sit here officially due to give birth in 10 days. Now, just a little personal disclosure here. I'm secretly thinking, wouldn't distraction be a better tool for childbirth? Like, do I really want to be focusing all my attention on each specific moment of pain, moment after moment after moment? Apparently, AD is going to allay all my fears and tell us more about when and why mindful birthing can work. Phew, just in time for me. As well as that, given it's my last show for a while and I'm generally a bit of a last-minute person, I've decided to pretty much pack the show with everything I'll need to know going into this unimaginable but very exciting phase of first-time parenting. First, we'll get our heads around child vaccination and where the debate has moved to this past week. And then we're also going to talk about screen time for children. How much is too much? What are the pros and cons? And what should we as adults be modelling? And then we're going to finish with a segment from Dr Malice about the importance of remembering the past. A critical skill for me to develop over the coming months, I think, as things like decent sleep, cinemas, restaurants, sanity and peace become vague and distant memories. So that's me sorted. Hopefully there's something in all of that to interest you as well. And just so you know, Dr Doolittle is waiting patiently by the phone as backup just in case labour starts specifically in the next hour. My thoughts about him being on backup were about him stepping in to host, but he mentioned something about hot towels, cigars and a live-to-air broadcast. So best we get on with things while he's still a decent ride away, I think. So go on, grab a cup of coffee, put those swollen feet up, or is that just me, and settle in for all this and more. Triple R, not for everyone, for anyone. It's lovely to see you all. Miss Medic, how are you? Uh, I'm very well, Dr. Kankles. I, I mean, autonomy. <laughs> oh, thank God it's radio. I know, but they're gorgeous. <laughs> and temporary, right? Temporary. Yeah, very okay. much temporary. Yeah, good, good. Yeah. <laughs> Dr. Malice, well, good morning. Should, good morning. We should say uh, perhaps hello to both of you this morning. Yes. <laughs> wow, what a strange concept. Hello, yeah. hello. Hello, hello. <laughs> now, thank you for that wonderful introduction, but I think you did leave out one of the all-time important themes, uh, which is that the football season has started since the last time we were on air. Uh, 
Well, just I would have thought that that's something most people might need a reminder of from the past. Yes, I've been dying for a reminder about the footy, actually, Dr Mills. It's going to be so sad not to be on air every month hearing about the updates from you. Yeah, I'll have to make sure I do tune in, What if you've got a little budding footballer growing inside you, Dr Autonomy? Have you said that? Did you say buddy? Yeah, it's all coming together. <laughs> and Dr. Aidy Brown, good morning to you. Good morning. Thank you so much for joining us today. I'm very much looking forward to your segment later. Thank you for having me on the show. We were um, having a bit of a joke in the green room before about you know having someone about who's an expert in mindful childbirth, and we've got a GP and a child psychiatrist all in the studio. So we're going to be fine no matter what happens, aren't we, guys? Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> What's that look, Malice? <laughs> um, all right, look, let's kick off because it's been a huge week in the news and I think there's just really nowhere else to start other than the vaccination debate. Miss Medic, do you want to lead us through this? It has been a massive week and look, I have spoken about immunisations many times on the show Um, but yes, things have really taken a little bit of a turn over the last week and we're being bombarded with lots of information so basically as most of us are aware what has come out in the last week is the government's plans to withdraw the tax family tax benefit and childcare rebate for those families that are conscientious objectors to vaccination so this has created a real um, a lot of noise uh, with people saying, you know, great, this is one way that we can help push our immunisation rates up. Other people saying, this is so wrong, how can we create a sort of financial punishment for those people? And and then there's lots of us sort of, or I think I'm sitting at the moment just thinking, well, is this going to work? Is this going to do anything? And, um, and, and yeah, I think that it's possibly not our best strategy. So It's the no jab, no pay policy, isn't it? That's right. That's what it's been called. That's what yeah. it's been called. So I guess... Um, my thoughts on this are that obviously, and I don't think no one will be shocked and surprised by this, that I'm 100% pro-vaccination. But, um, and, I, and I do think we need to do work to increase our vaccination rates, which are, are dropping. Um, but, I, yeah, I'm just not sure this is the right way to go about it, um, basically because I don't think it's going to work. Because I think... And I think it could even make things worse. Mm. And the reason I say that is I think that what this would do is just broaden the gap between mm. those people who are pro-vaccination and those that are the objectors. And in a situation like this, this that's the last thing we want to do. We want to actually emphasise what is what about us all makes us more similar rather than what makes us different. Um, so for... As mothers, we all want to do the best for our children. That's pretty much universal. So doesn't that's what sort of makes us the same, that intent. So by forcing, trying to force the hand um, of mothers by taking away financial payments, I think we're really just creating more... Um, just more intense battle lines that are going to be harder to cross because that is actually my intent as a GP is when I hear someone is a objector to immunisations, my thought is, well, how can we keep this discussion open? How can we keep talking about it? How can I help them understand the, my perspective on this? Um, and and that's what I think we, we, re- we really risk 
through this approach? Yeah, um, there's been so much stuff in the paper this week and, and two of the things that really stood out to me were um, firstly an article by Waleed Ali in, in um, The Age, oh, I think. Oh, that was a sensational... Was a yeah. beautiful piece yeah. and he really echoed exactly what you're just saying, which was taking away people's welfare payments. Firstly, it's not going to make a huge difference because that is not the key cohort who are right. anti-vaccine. But also, you know, is this really where we want to go as a society, this punitive approach of punishment, which is going to do nothing to bring people together for open discussions about where we can meet in the middle. Uh, And the other article that was really interesting was by a woman called Tara Hills, Mm. who's a mother uh, in Canada, and she has seven children, all of whom came down with whooping cough at the same time, and she was um, very much an anti-vaccination person and that's her stance but since seeing her children have whooping cough she's now changed her stance and she wrote a very honest and I thought a very brave piece um, to put out into the community given that you know people have been receiving death threats for for coming out as being um, anti-vaxxers and I I also am pro-vaccination but reading this article of hers I don't know, the psychologist in me, the the human being, the mother-to-be, couldn't help but empathise with part of her um, stance before her children had become sick, just about when she talked about her values and wanting to do the best by her children, Mm. and that was her goal, and her decision not to vaccinate came from scepticism and fear. It's it's not neglect, it's not um, a lack of education, it's a considered, you know, thoughtful approach, and the... Um, the decision would be different from the decision that I would make. But, um, you know, punitive approaches and taking money away surely is not a way to start connecting and having that discussion. That, look, I, I completely agree with you. And I read that article also. And what stood out for me is that a lot of what she said drove her initial decision to not vaccinate was fear. She mm-hmm. said she felt a sort of a sense of being paralysed and stuck. And it was easier in a way to not do anything with that. Of course. And that's they're the, that's the exact cohort I try to find when I speak to people about vaccinations and whether or not, because it's those people that you can really help see and overcome the fear. Because, look, even myself as a GP who 100% believes in the science behind vaccinations, I feel a sense of un- discomfort and... A real unease, and I don't love when my kids go and have their vaccinations because I do in doing in, in giving my children's vaccinations, I am accepting a very small but a real risk to them, risk of allergy and things. I'm not talking about autism because that has absolutely been debunked. That is not a risk of vaccinations. That's just a hundred percent. I'm a hundred percent clear on that. But there's a risk of a reaction to a vaccine. But I'm accepting that two percent risk to my child not only to protect my child but for the broader community and that's the sense that i uh, that i think that we really are losing and if we start to really separate these groups to you and i mm. and we don't and we make this gap even broader then we forget to talk about community responsibility and the fact that we each have to take an individual risk sometimes and take a bit of a hit for the for the broader good. And I think that's where this idea of welfare cuts and this punitive approach just seems, you know, on a values base to be completely contrary to where we're trying to get as a community. Yeah, I think so. Can I just make one other point? Mm. I know we want to move on to other things. But 
When I think about what we perhaps should do, some of the things we need to do is, you know, when I talk about closing the gap, is increase the education. Let's talk about what these these illnesses really are. Last time I spoke about the measles outbreak in Disneyland on the show a few months ago, we had a comment on our Facebook page which was, you know, really made a very good point, and that was... You know, measles is a terrible illness. Let's talk about what that actually involves. So, you know, that we should be making sure that everyone out there knows that measles, if a child gets it, you know, can be fatal, that they are significantly unwell. They can get encephalitis, pneumonia, you know, then they can, it can be fatal. It still remains the fifth highest cause of disease and death in worldwide for children can you just say that again the fifth highest cause of disease and death in children worldwide measles measles wow so that's what that's what we're doing we these are the things that we're preventing so this you know we need to talk about what these illnesses actually are so the the woman tara hills in that article talked about actually watching her ch- her children suffer with whooping cough and actually seeing that then this all comes into a bit more of it it's a different perspective rather than thinking these diseases are gone they're old you know we won't see them again um so education is important and i just wanted to draw attention to what i another great approach that i saw a very local um City Council of Melbourne did, I think, last year. There were some posters around with depicting a, a typical young mum of the area, and it said, I buy organic, I do yoga, I use natural therapies. And I vaccinate my children. And this is the kind of approach that I want to see more of. Let's talk about what's similar between us all rather than what's different. And let's try to keep that conversation going in order to, you know, increase our immunizations, immunization rates and protect all of our children. I'm going to wrap that discussion up there. I think we could talk about this for the whole hour, but uh, it's a, it's fascinating stuff, and it will be very interesting to see where it goes. So the could plan I just, could oh, I just add a postscript because I heard on the radio a wonderful uh, segment, and it was literally in getting in and out of the car, so I don't know the context. But the question came up about this languaging of does this um, new policy really force? anyone to do anything Hmm. and an ethicist said actually doesn't Mm. because force is when you are getting your mother and child pushed into the surgery that's called force anything else is called pressure coercion and many other things but i think we have lost the impact of the directness and as miss medic said unless you see a child in that situation you've got an idea of it a witness who's actually seen a mother and a child has a totally different perspective and that's not then force Mm. that is a form of intellectualizing the values and i think education i'm all for and like uh, miss medic just described let's hear what measles actually is it's not just a word it's a threat to a life and that's the individual and then the other language we have to introduce is herd immunity Mm. it is totally dependent on the critical mass of the individuals now at what point is the virtue and value of the herd the whole community greater and trumps individual liberty and autonomy Mm. that's the real tension when a child's life is at risk here yeah absolutely Mm. and not just your child but the children around you who are at the same child care 
centre. That's yeah. Yes. Um, the plan for the welfare cut specifically is that they will come in in January 2016, 2016 and they've got bipartisan support at the moment. So it's going to be interesting to see where that goes. But um, I'm sure you will hear more about the debate uh, on radiotherapy in the coming months. I'm going to shift the focus now just for a few minutes to screen time for kids. Next big debate. (laughs) This is Uh, where I'll get off my high horse. (laughs) (laughs) Kids, put down your iPads. (laughs) Um, So I think it was, ironically, I think it was on Facebook this week that I saw an article about screen time for children and particularly for kids under two years of age. And I read this article and uh, it's, it wasn't a particularly recent article, I think it was a few months old, but they, they were generally saying that the guide, current guidelines are that for kids under two years they shouldn't be having any screen time. So screen time being iPads, iPhones, television as well, computers, uh, that under two years of age, no screen time is the recommendation. (laughs) And I'm sure people listening out there have the same looks on their face as the people in the studio. Um, Two to four years of age, the recommendation is no more than one hour per day for two to four-year-olds. And for five to 17-year-olds... So all through adolescence, the recommendation is no more than two hours per day of screen time. So I couldn't help but read this and think, gosh, what would the recommendations for adults be as well? You know, I don't think any of us are meeting those sorts of recommendations either. But I guess I wanted to know what the evidence and science was behind it. I've first got a question. Was the date of this posting the 1st of April by any chance? (laughs) It wasn't, unfortunately. Because any study that lumps children 5 to 17 together, you have to ask what sort of researchers are they when some of the most profound mental challenges Changes on the brain structure occur between five and eight as a going to school, and the second lot occurs around adolescence, which is 12 and 13. So, how do you lump a five year old and a 17 year old under the same criteria? I have no idea. You are very astute, Dr. Mallis, and in fact, they didn't do that. I just did that oh. because the recommendations are the same for both of those groups. So, I think they did five to 12 and 12 to 17. <laughs> But for both of those groups, the recommendation is no more than two hours. Well, how could even that be? How can you have the same recommendation for a primary school child with a brain of a child and a late secondary school age child, adult, adolescent, who's on the verge of adolescence? I mean, they're on the verge of getting a licence. Their worldliness and the five-year-old's worldliness surely is a different world outlook. Are you thinking, I'm just curious now, are you thinking that for teenagers it would be okay for them to have more screen time or are you just I think on the path of adolescence you negotiate with adolescents and they regulate. They're not treated like five-year-olds. That's the point. You're trying to make them independent. In a year, they're eligible to be army service, to vote, to mm. drive, and you're still going to be prescribing how many hours you can watch a screen. Yeah, that's going really? to be successful, isn't it? Wow. <laughs> I mean, yeah, but I guess point. it might be that that's the 
that's the time, you know, two hours for adults as well. Well, they don't talk about adults, but you imagine if that's what they're recommending for 17-year-olds, then they're not going to be saying... I'd like to know their credentials for recommending for me what to do in my adult life after just a a session on vaccination. What are my rights in this? a little bit of a sore spot. Wow, yeah. I'm an addict. (laughs) (laughs) Let's talk more about this later. Uh, (laughs) No, I, I totally understand what you mean. And I think that was part of my reason for thinking, well, you know, what are the references that they're quoting? What is the evidence? Do we know that it's harmful? Um, you know, what what sorts of harms does it lead to? Where are these recommendations coming from? And it was interesting because I couldn't find a lot of evidence for harm. The main paper that they recommend, uh, that they reference, sorry, is um, it's a policy statement and it's by the American Academy of Pediatrics, so very sort of high-level stuff and there's loads of references that this policy statement refers to and it was written in 1999. It's been revised again in 2011. And it's a high-quality paper that's published in an academic journal. But and, and they are the ones that say for under two years of age, no screen time is recommended. Um, but the main reasons and, and the main justification seems to be that, firstly, there's no evidence for benefit. So the one thing that everyone is really clear about is that all of these sort of, you know, iPad and computer and phone apps that say they're educational for children, there's just no evidence that that's the case. So there's no evidence for benefit when kids are using these um these programs and and having screen time the second argument is that they suspect there could be harms but there isn't hard evidence yet to of causality so there's sort of links that they talk about you know links between lots of screen time and um, mood and posture and energy level problems in the short term and obesity and attention disorders in the long term um, but the, the key point that they seem to be making, which I think is also a good point, uh, is that the more screen time you have, the less physical activity time you're having. And it's the other forms of play, so they talk about sensory play and social play and exploratory play and rough and tumble. The more time that kids are in front of a screen, the less time they're getting doing that other sort of stuff. And we do know that all of that other sort of stuff is um, the best way for neurological development and um, all the wonderful development that happens in that early phase of life. So... It's sort of a precautionary guidance, I think, from what I can tell, that there's no evidence of benefit. They suspect there might be links and longer-term harm. So given that, let's limit time and focus children's time and activities on other things. Um, The one other thing they talk about are language delays. So the longer that kids are in front of a screen, um, the less time they are either talking to their parents or even just hearing adults talk in the background because often adults are busy or adults might be watching, you know, whatever's on the screen as well. And so language delay is another big area that there is some evidence and links for. But none of it is causal at the moment. It's all a bit of a question mark, which I thought was really interesting. What do you think, guys? <laughs> oh, look, some of, some of this to me just sort of screams of common sense. I mean, most of us just would know that our children sitting with a device all day is not going to be the best thing for them. Um, but the other thing that just comes up is all this, like, parental guilt stuff that, you know, we are constantly being told we're not quite doing it right, we're not doing enough, we're not, 
you know, there's so much parents these days are under so much pressure so i think in a certain way more pressure than our parents um you know i'm trying to make sure i play with my kids and talk to my kids and open up dialogue and take them to swimming lessons and take them to dance lessons and you know all of this stuff and whereas i think my parents just sort of let us run around and um I don't actually remember them, you know, playing with us that much. Um, so I think that there's a lot of guilt that goes on for parents. Which most of us are trying really hard as it is. And sometimes using a device like an iPad or, you know, the TV just buys you a bit of sanity. And so surely that's good for the kid. Happy mum equals happy kids. Well, to a certain extent. I mean, I remember being really um, conscious about screen time and knew the guidelines and no TV under the age of two when I had my first child. But when my daughter was two and a half, her, her little brother came along and... You know, things changed. I needed to wrangle two kids. It was that much more difficult. So there were days where I think my two-and-a-half-year-old spent a fair bit of time in front of the TV. But, hey, I'm sure she'll be all right. (laughs) You know, I think it's all about weighing up the the balances in these things and let's not be too hard on ourselves and i think what i found in um you know reading about these guidelines was that i can't imagine parents saying okay well we're going to follow these by the book and make sure that under two no screen time happens and two to four it's under an hour i just can't see that happening and it doesn't happen with us as adults either i think we all know we should be doing more physical activity and and you know getting up from your desk every hour and not having so much screen time but you know life is life and we don't always meet those guidelines but i think having the awareness about why it could be um a negative and uh the the parts of child's play that you might lose time with if you're having more screen time i guess just helps to to keep that stuff in your mind so if the kids are having screen time for an hour or two every day then you make sure that you balance that out with something else that's more active and doesn't involve screens uh as well in that day and i think it it just helps you keep that balance um more mindful yeah it's just the awareness of it yeah i think that's right interesting stuff Mm. we're going to come back with our two segments firstly mindful childbirth with dr Adie brown and then we're going to go to malice to talk about the importance of remembering the past and not always being in the moment so don't go away you are listening to a podcast from community radio 3 triple r fm in melbourne australia and you're listening to myself, Dr. Autonomy, Miss Medic, Dr. Malice, and our extra special guest, Dr. Aidy Brown, who we're going to chat to now. Uh, let me tell you a little bit about her, and then uh, we can hear from her. So, Dr. Adrian Brown is a clinical psychologist, and she's got a particular passion for perinatal mental health and mindfulness. Professionally, she's taught mindfulness in the corporate sector as well as to colleagues and she uses mindfulness-based therapy with her clients. And personally, her mindfulness practice has evolved from experiences from experiences in a variety of disciplines such as yoga, meditation and the study of Tibetan Buddhism. Uh, when she fell pregnant with her first child a couple of years ago, she was particularly inspired to use mindfulness skills to cope with the pregnancy and the birth as well as her new role as a mother and I guess noticing the value of this in her own life 
then led her to create antenatal classes that provide formal mindfulness training for childbirth preparation and her new organisation, which you can find more um, out about online, and we'll put the website up on our Facebook page, is called Mindful Beginnings. Thinking of Mindful Beginnings, (laughs) it is a funny thing that uh, it was... 18, about 18 years ago, I think, that Aidy and Miss Medic and myself were all sitting in undergraduate psychology lectures at Melbourne Uni together. Yes. Can you believe that was 18 years ago, Aidy? We look the same, though. It's amazing. <laughs> of course we do. <laughs> Nothing's changed. Yeah, I think... I think well, when... well, if you're 21 now, 18, yeah. so you were precocious Geniuses. girls. Gifted, gifted, Yes. <laughs> uh, yeah, I sat down next to you, Aidy, in a huge psychology undergraduate lecture at Melbourne Uni and I think we started chatting because I had missed a lecture and I asked you if I could borrow your notes because there was no such thing as you know PowerPoint and online slides to just download it was all handwritten in the olden days (laughs) and so I was asking to borrow your notes so I took your entire book of lecture notes and you let you gave it to me a complete stranger overnight and I copied them out and gave them back to you and friendship was born. And I think that story even um, took place or was repeated in my 21st. I think you were overseas and you sent through a speech. You've just reminded me of that. <laughs> and part of that speech was um, was that story about how we met. How funny. <laughs> and here we are, years later, talking about mindful childbirth. So... I have a sense that mindfulness is talked about a lot in the public at the moment and that it's becoming something that people um, have a real sense of and have heard a lot about. Um, Is that your sense as well or do you still come across people who don't know what it is? I think it depends. I think there are certain groups of people who are probably more exposed to mindfulness and what mindfulness is. Um, But indeed, the term is used a lot and increasingly so over the last few years. So I think you would be um, hard-pressed to find someone who hasn't heard of the word. Whether Mm. they know what mindfulness is or not is a different story. So how do you define it? What do you mean when you say mindfulness? I define mindfulness thinking simply about what it is as paying attention to the present moment. Um, Essentially, the way I think about it is that it's not necessarily something that we can practice once a week, like we might go to a gym class or go to a movie once a week. It's more of a state of being. Um, So mindfulness can be included in your life in every moment. Um, So I think a lot of the time when people think about mindfulness, they think about meditating and sitting down and meditating and focusing on the breath for however long. Now, indeed, mindfulness meditation does involve that, but there are lots of other forms of mindfulness, particularly what I think about as informal mindfulness. So we can be mindful, we can pay attention to the present moment in whatever we're doing, whether it's talking, listening, eating, walking. (laughs) And so it's something that can be incorporated into every moment of your life. And I think um, the the main uh, benefit of, there are many benefits of mindfulness and the research is um, mounting. Um, However, one of the sort of main benefits, I think, is that what, what it does is it teaches us to let go of distraction. Our minds are very busy most of the time and we are often on autopilot. And so we always, most of us have the memory or have had the experience of driving from A to B and then not remembering 
the drive or reading a few pages in a book and finding that we have no idea what we've just read. So a lot of the time we do tend to be on autopilot and what happens when we're on autopilot is that we essentially miss out on the moment. We miss out on what is important to us in that present moment because we are often distracted by our minds and our thoughts and emotions. So mindfulness really teaches us to let go of that. Notice the thoughts and emotions, but let go of them and bring ourselves back into the present moment to doing what's important in our life. That all sounds absolutely beautiful to me as a way to live life, except for during childbirth, perhaps, <laughs> when I wonder if being so focused on the moment-to-moment experiences makes things more difficult because, from what people tell me, it's quite a painful, difficult, you know, labour-intensive experience to go through. And don't I want to be distracted? Don't I want to be taken out of that moment just to get through? I'm really curious about why mindfulness for childbirth is the go. Good question. Um, (laughs) Good timing too. Good timing. (laughs) Mindfulness has a lot of um, benefits and there are a lot of areas around pregnancy and childbirth that I think people can benefit from mindfulness. But firstly starting with pain because that is often the word and the the concern on, you know, every pregnant woman's mind. How how am I going to manage labour pain? Um, We hear that it's the, the most pain that could possibly be ever experienced. Um, so thinking about that, what mindfulness does is it recognises that, and this draws on research from um, using mindfulness for people with chronic pain, mm. um, and it applies that. So basically what we know around pain is that our thoughts about the pain can impact our experience of the pain. Mm. And so what that means is that when we experience pain that we can't control, of course if we experience some pain that um, we can do something about, then we would do that. But um, in certain kinds of pain, like chronic pain and also childbirth pain, the pain is real and and the pain is there and we can't necessarily um, work towards um, extinguishing that pain. That being said, I think it's important to remember that the pain of childbirth is a different kind of pain to the pain of a sort of physical ailment or chronic pain. The pain of childbirth is a functional pain. It's a good pain. It actually indicates that your body's doing what it's meant to be doing. Mm. Um, And so the role of mindfulness in childbirth is that it recognises when we're becoming hooked by thoughts about the pain, when we're becoming concerned when our thoughts are around fears or anxieties or worries about the pain. Hmm. And what we know is that our thoughts about that can actually increase our sense of pain. Uh, The research suggests that people who meditate actually report fewer pain sensations compared to non-meditators. And so the pain might be the same, but we actually have a different relationship to it. We're not fighting it. We're not trying to push it away or avoid it. And so in a way, by accepting it and allowing it to be there and thinking differently about the pain, our experience of the pain changes. 
So this really speaks to the mind-body link, doesn't it? And that what you are thinking and how you, I guess, what you choose to focus on mentally can actually change your physical experiences. And, and what I'm hearing is that this isn't just the case for childbirth, but also for people who suffer chronic pain. Yes. Yeah. And I think you touch on a really important point is that mind-body connection. Um, because mindfulness of the breath exercises, so they can, they can sort of be in a whole lot of different forms, but essentially focusing on deepening the breath actually impacts the body. And so what we know when we... A lot of people have heard of the sort of fight-flight response. So thoughts, fearful, anxious, worrying thoughts can actually increase our heart rate and lead to the fight-and-flight response, which, of course, has its place in some areas of our life. And indeed, towards the end of childbirth, we need a push of adrenaline to get the baby out. Mm. Um, But while the body is actually needing to open up and soften... As the cervix is opening, what we, what's most important is that we're engaging not the sympathetic nervous system, which is responsible for fight and flight, but the parasympathetic nervous system, which is responsible for feelings of calm, connection, and one of the major birth hormones, oxytocin. And so by slowing down our breath and extending our out-breath, what we can do is we can engage that system. And so in, essentially we can use mindfulness of the breath to enable our body to do what it needs to do during childbirth. Which, if it works and it's done correctly, and I guess if you have practised it and and you believe in it and you're willing to really work with that during childbirth, can have physical benefits and physical changes to your body in the moment, is what I'm hearing. I'm just writing all this down. So breathe. (laughs) (laughs) Long out breath. (laughs) What else was there? Um... That, that makes Pre- a lot of sense. Preceded by an in-breath. Yeah. Yeah, yes. <laughs> breathe in, breathe out. Yeah, yeah, it's a Sounds doable. <laughs> um, that makes a lot of sense to me, I guess. Um, I guess my next question is about the, the um, birth partner. Mm. So, And you talked a little bit, uh, I think, when we chatted on the phone this week about... Uh, post-birth as well and parenting Mm. and also pre-birth and pregnancy and I guess that's all fairly focused on the birth mother Mm. what about the birth partners whether they're a dad or another woman or you know or a best friend helping you through the birth can mindfulness help them too or is it really something that that you know one of those situations in life where it's it's really just on you and it's about the the woman birthing and and the the birth mother Mm. well like you said dr autonomy um the it is a matter of remembering it remembering to (laughs) breathe and when a woman is in the midst of childbirth they're not thinking you know and that the what they want is to actually turn their thinking mind off because the focus needs to be on the body and using your intuition and your body awareness. And so um, that's the role of the birth partner. So by the birth partner being um, aware and practised in mindfulness and through working with the pregnant woman in preparation for the childbirth, the role of the birth partner is to actually guide them and um, use that particular practice strategy 
in the labor the labor room the birthing room so they it's their job to remind the woman to breathe um, and there are lots of different ways that they can actually support the woman in that for example counting the breaths with her so that they sl- she slows her breath and really recognizing when the woman is you know uh, in a crisis or becoming kind of hooked by fear or other kind of sort of unhelpful thoughts and bringing her back into the moment and providing that reassurance Mm. Um, and indeed um, you know throughout pregnancy and and after the childbirth mindfulness is not just helpful for childbirth as we're seeing it's helpful in lots of different domains of our lives Um, and indeed for managing stress and uncertainty and there are lots of other factors you know pregnancy being such a wonderful exciting experience but also one that's really um you know uh can be overwhelming and that is associated with a lot of uncertainties around coping um and so the the birth partners whether it's the father or or whatever it can actually help them to cope with stress and other other challenges throughout the pregnancy um, and feedback from past participants has been um, past birth partners fathers in particular is that it's actually helped them in their role as parenting and that's the same goes for for the women as well hmm. tell me a bit more about these participants so this is part of a workshop is it that you run for mindful beginnings what yes yeah so who are the participants and what what do you do with them so it's a four-week course Um, Each session is approximately two and a half hours and focuses on a different aspect of mindfulness. Um, The participants are a pregnant lady and her birth partner. So it's, it's not necessary for the birth partner to come along. However, if there is a birth partner, then it's encouraged that they are part of the process as well. And it's, it's a practical course, so people pro- are provided with a really strong foundation in mindfulness practice as applied to childbirth. Um, but not only, it's, um, it's also applied to, to connecting with the baby during the pregnancy and, and parenting as well in terms of developing a secure attachment with your child afterwards. Mm. And so the people who attend the course would... Um, receive information on you know using mindfulness of the breath techniques and a range of techniques to use during pregnancy and labor um, working with unhelpful thoughts and common challenges Um, every situation every person's situation is different um, and so we all bring bring to the table different concerns Um, definitely working with pain in childbirth um, and also the course focuses one session partly on the birth partner and and choosing a birth partner and and what the birth partner's role is in Mm. the in the birthing room so two and a half hours over four weeks do you do any 10 day short course (laughs) (laughs) short courses (laughs) possibly an individual consultation great great fantastic (laughs) uh no no all jokes aside it sounds wonderful um and i wish you lots of luck with this new endeavor of mindful beginnings we will put the details of mindful beginnings up on our facebook page if anyone is interested Three triple R. And now we're going to talk about the past, I think, and specifically 
why it's important to remember the past as well as being in the moment. Dr Malice. Well, it's really a fascinating program and I'm almost tempted to put my uh, thoughts into the context of this morning's panel. That is that Anzac Day, which is what stimulated my thinking about the relationship between the past and the present, and indeed the whole experience is for the sake of the future. So we have to remember Mm. that the reason we remember now mindfully is for the future. Hmm. The past has already happened. It's how we're going to actually be relating to our past in this moment, and I'm going to focus on Anzac Day coming up next week, because it is going to shape how our identity, how we relate to uh, an extraordinary experience of our historic past, is alive in the moment if only we're mindful of it. And I was really taken by Dr. Aidy's comment about being mindful in the moment and how often we're on autopilot. Mm -hmm. And the question that you then raised, Dr. Autonomy, about don't we sometimes need distractions? And that's almost when we've still got a choice. Hmm. But in certain human experiences, we don't even have a choice and we have too much Uh, coming in onto our minds and we actually disconnect and dissociate now that is a sort of necessary state for most of us when we're overwhelmed and what i gather from your program is that you increase the amount of tolerance of a a woman who's about to enter pregnancy uh, and childbirth with or without the partner you increase the window of tolerance by becoming mindful And given that breathing is a natural function, and that is what we lose our breath when we're traumatised, we literally gasp in the moment of being traumatised. Now, natural childbirth is not a traumatic experience, it's natural, but it's with extreme experiences. So if I make a link, and it's going to be quite a big jump here, (laughs) but in the history of an individual, childbirth becomes their defining moment of a transition from being a wife, a partner, a woman, into an additional identity called a mother. And that changes the what I was in the past to what I am here and now to never be reversible. Hmm. And so we may nostalgically want to recall what we were like and going out and freedom and so on, (laughs) Uh, but that's not the point here. It's remembering those things, in fact, for the quality of who we are in the present, the Hmm. mindful mothering and the quality as we raised in the screen time uh, discussion earlier. Now, how does all this bear on the First World War? A hundred years ago, Centenary... Really, I mean, it's at least four to five generations removed, 1914 Mm. to 2014, and now 15 is when the Anzacs landed, uh, and then the following years where the history got shaped and formed. How does all this relate to something as immediate as a childbirth within the next 10 days? Now, it is about the individual versus the whole community, And it is a shaping of identities. So just as motherhood changes, so we, as the story, and now it has become a legend, Australia grew up 
during that First World War, and from a colonial outpost, we forged a national identity. And tragically, it was forged under the circumstances, and I don't want to politicalise this discussion, but rather not even psychologise it, but to put it into a psychological context. The experiences were too much. And as we all know the adage that the first casualty of any war is truth, it has taken a hundred years for some of those truths to slowly emerge. And some of them are not very pretty truths, as we now know from the documentaries and the testimonies of uh, the veterans and their subsequent families. Now, what actually happens is when we get overwhelmed by too much at the national level, For the sake of security and many other reasons, censorship comes in. And that is where the national consciousness is censored. Part of that is necessary for security, but a lot of it is to do with just being overwhelming. And so the military and the political parties at the time don't want the population to panic and to become too distressed. And this is where management of morale Mm. and the well-being and the hope, and this is where great wartime leaders such as Churchill triumphed during wartime but were quite hopeless in peacetime. So some people step up and reach their best in times of adversity. The... the the link that's going on in my mind is, you know, this this event that is such a marker of a transition in your life, whether it's childbirth or, or going to war, you know, this, this singular event that is such a marker of a transition for who you were before and who you are afterwards, as you mentioned. And I think, you know, that's a, a big enough thing in and of itself for an individual to come to terms with and process, but to be coming to terms with that and processing that as an individual with all of these other layers of, yeah, as you say, national censorship and what you should and shouldn't be thinking about it and what's being acknowledged and what's not being acknowledged is incredibly complex, isn't it? It is complex and it is as complex as mindfulness is complex in turn as how complex our mind is under extremes. And so the idea of remembering is really how we're created. We are created with a memory for a reason, and that is to learn from the past. It is not only the sentiment and the commemorative and recalling memorialisations and documentaries and so on. It is actually to learn in future generations, and the reason we have those institutions is because it is too much, it is too complex for the generation that lives through it to actually make space for it. It is too immediate, and we, as we were, lose our collective breath. Mm. And the generation after, who becomes the witness, regains a little bit of the truth, the bits and the fragments that the generation who survived cannot actually hold in their mind. They're mindless. This is what dissociation is in psychological terms. It's when our minds can no longer remain integrated and whole and adaptive. We are in, as you mentioned, survival mode. We have the fight response, the flight response, the freeze response, and in the end the faint or dissociation. And so many people after war actually go onto autopilot for the rest of their lives. And then they have all the, now we know, PTSD symptoms and the sufferer themselves and all the relationships 
So their birthing partners, as it were, also dissociated and traumatised. So the idea of vicarious trauma is really important to keep in mind not only for the generation who went through, but all who then witnessed it and weren't physically there, but as we talked about screen time. Visual input is as if we are there, and now we know through various scan studies that exactly the same phenomena happens in the brains of the viewer, that is the vicarious trauma, that they disconnect from amygdala and frontal lobe and become vulnerable to PTSD. So mindfulness is really, it's a, it's a catch-all phrase, but it is one of the most profound ways to manually override this quality of losing our breath. It is consciously training to regain our breath for the sake of our body and therefore fire up the rest of the brain, which is what an autopilot actually does. You have it there, but you turn it on, it fires up the rest of the brain. And and in the context of Anzac Day and the fact that it's been 100 years, it's interesting to think about our role as, I guess, the public who wasn't directly involved in that. And I think often people think, well, it's just a a matter of respect to um, be mindful on that day and to, to pay respect, you know, to the people who were involved. But the way that you're speaking about it sounds like we have an even greater role, that it's not just about respect, it's almost an an altruistic act and um, almost a a different kind of service, not to put that in the same category at all, but to help people who were involved to have some mindfulness and process it and be acknowledged that maybe we have a different capacity to um, process that sort of stuff because we weren't there than they do. Well, in a way, you're spot on that we do it not only for the memory of the past, but for ourselves. And let's not forget there are generations of people who did have great-grandparents in that war, and they are mourning and grieving and celebrating. So that's a direct lineage of trauma transmission. Mm. And so I agree that it is how we are as human beings, how we relate to these events, and it is as much for our benefit and our children and our children's future that we do this so-called remembrance. It is actually being mindful in this current day, the 25th of April, Mm. coming up. What a lovely note to end on, Dr Mullis. We're going to wrap things up there because we've got a room full of scientists ready to bring you another hour of fascinating stuff. Thank you to the team of Marinara who are on before us and give us a beautiful lead-in as always. Kent, magic on the buttons. Dr. A.D. Brown, Dr. Malice, Miss Medic, thank you, team. Who knows when I will be back in this studio, but I look forward to it whenever it is. Thank you for all the preparation today. And radiotherapy will be back next week as always. Bye. Whenever I come home after a hard day's work, I love to listen to the sounds of Triple R 102.7. Triple R is having an April amnesty. Subscribe by the end of April and go in the running to win. A 2015 Melbourne Writers Festival VIP pack, including two tickets to the exclusive program launch two tickets to the festival opening address and a festival five pack giving you access to the best in writing and ideas. The Retreat Hotel would like you and your friends to come in and enjoy lovely cocktails at Amelia Shaw Bar. Their little secret, through the door and up the stairs. 
a voucher to spend online at lovehate.com.au. Thoughtful Melbourne designers of jewellery, clothing and homewares. A double pass to a corner show of the winner's choice, plus dinner and drinks at the Corner Hotel. Two-year Green and Treadley magazine subscriptions, plus two Treadley T-shirts and a Musette cycling bag. Dinner for two at Boney Kitchen, plus entry for two to a Boney event of the winner's choice. To subscribe, call 9388 1027 or go to rrr.org.au. This has been a podcast from Free Triple R, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.